Welcome to The Brief Premium Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ames, the editor of The Brief. Later, we will be discussing the perils of judge-led public inquiries with Sir Oliver Popperwell, the former High Court judge, and Ashley Underwood, QC, a prominent public law and judicial review barrister. Also joining us later will be Laura Jaynes, the legal director at the Howard League for Penal Reform. She instructed Dan Squires, QC, in the recent case where the High Court ruled that it was unlawful for the state to hold a 16-year-old in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. But first, a snapshot overview of the current legal issues. Challenges over life and death continue this week in the High Court in London. The parents of Charlie Gard, an 11-month-old brain-damaged boy, are back in court. They hope that a specialist doctor from the US can convince a judge that the child should travel to America for what they say is groundbreaking treatment. While lawyers for Noel Conway, a retired college lecturer with motor neuron disease, are also at the Royal Courts of Justice. They are mounting the latest attempt to reform the law on assisted suicide. Conway wants a doctor to be able legally to prescribe a lethal dose at the time of the former teacher's choosing. Out of court, the Home Secretary aims to quash a spate of acid attacks by beefing up the law. Over last weekend, Amber Rudd announced a review of legislation covering the purchase of corrosive liquids. Campaigners are calling on the government to adapt the same legal approach to carrying acid as is taken to carrying unauthorised knives. And in law firm land, fears over the impact of Brexit on the legal profession are not yet showing up in their financial figures. Research released this week from the Law Society, the body that represents solicitors in England and Wales, found that profits at law firms across the jurisdiction are at a seven-year high, up by 8.5% over the last year. And back to the senior judicial bench. He may not have been the bookie's favourite, but Sir Ian Burnett has beaten a strong field to become the next Lord Chief Justice. The current Court of Appeal judge came to the public eye when he acted as counsel to the inquests in the King's Cross underground fire and the deaths of Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed. He will take over from Lord Thomas, who is retiring at the beginning of October. The Grenfell fire disaster in West London has already become one of the most controversial events in recent British social and political history. Who is to blame? How did it happen? And did the local and national authorities react fast enough and well enough? The person with the difficult task of answering those and many other questions is Sir Martin Moore Bick. The government has appointed the retired Court of Appeal judge to the public inquiry into the disaster, and he has already stoked controversy partially because of comments he has made and partially for who he is. On the latter point, he is a white, male, 70-year-old who was educated at Cambridge. In other words, a photo fit of privilege in some minds. His initial comments have also been controversial. Days after his appointment, Sir Martin candidly said that his inquiry was not likely to answer all the questions and issues that victims of the fire and their relatives might have. Faced with potential critics on all sides, is Sir Martin on a hiding to nothing? And why would any retired judge or senior QC take on such a task? With us is Sir Oliver Popperwell, the former High Court judge who chaired the 1985 public inquiry into the Bradford football stadium fire, and Ashley Underwood QC, a prominent public law barrister who recently wrote in the brief premium that the Grenfell inquiry may be too much too soon. Sir Oliver, first to you. Have you got sympathy for Sir Martin? Is he on a hiding to nothing? Indeed, have things changed from 1985 when you took on the Bradford inquiry? Is public and political criticism almost too much now? Yes, the answer to that. But but he'll uh, manage it very well. I mean, judges are always in the 
a public eye, always subject to criticism. I mean, so far as Bradford is concerned, about three years ago, some survivor uh, wrote a book saying I'd got it all wrong and so on, and required a suggested a further public inquiry. Sensibly, the Home Office has rejected that. No, we're always subject to criticism, but I'm sure he'll handle it well. What are the, um, the, the approach he's taken, which is to put the, um, the, terms, of the terms of reference for the inquiry quite directly to, to, to the residents? Is that, is that appropriate? Is that, is that, is that a new... Is that, how, did, how did you handle it in, in Bradford? Uh, uh, well, I, th- I think you, if you're conducting an inquiry, you need to identify the issues which are government. And this one, um, it's what caused the fire, what caused uh, the deaths... Uh, who's responsible and what recommendations do you mean? That's a broad outline and you identify those issues um, fairly soon, I suspect. The other thing is to identify who's in the frame, that's to say who may be responsible, give them the opportunity to be represented uh, and to um, give evidence. What about Sir Martin's personal profile? I mean, that's come in very... uh, It's been the subject of much analysis... Um, but he's a judge. Judges have that profile. Um, how, how do you deal with the public perception that he's not one of us? Well, you, you can't. I mean, no, you can't go on explaining to people that judges are independent. I mean, politicians are just as bad criticising. So, I mean, it's an give up is the answer, trying to explain. Ashley, now you've, you've spoken or you've written for us that uh, regardless of, of the individuals involved or the individual involved, um, that the, the timing of this inquiry may not be quite right and may have some quite serious implications. Could you, perhaps you just remind us of your thoughts on that. Sure. Clearly, this was an enormous tragedy, and you can see why people would want to mark the respect, as it were, they have for it by having something like a public inquiry. But ordinarily, you'd have inquests, which would deal with the, the actual causes of the death. You'd have at least investigations by police, fire services, health and safety, etc., and perhaps prosecutions. And only after all that, if you've got anything left to ask, would you have a public inquiry. Here it's been put upside down, uh, and the huge difficulty that the unfortunate judge is going to face is managing expectations when he's got to tiptoe around the current investigations before he can do anything. I mean, do you think that um, there is a possibility that the inquiry will be so, in a way, comprehensive that we couldn't have a criminal prosecution. It's possible, but it would be incredibly unconventional to do that, mm-hmm. um, for a start. I mean, let's just look at the practicalities of this. When you get a witness who may or may not um, be asked questions which could incriminate him, you're going to have to put to him the, the possibility of not answering the question. So, at the outset, the judge would have to decide whether he's going to get an Attorney General's waiver for such things so that the attorney wouldn't then rely on any answers in any subsequent prosecution, or run the risk of of people incriminating themselves so he wouldn't get answers. It is just, as I say, putting things upside down, because what you might end up with is a, a public inquiry which shows demonstrable criminality, which then couldn't be brought to trial. Sir Oliver, do you think that the public inquiry should have been delayed until uh, potential criminal proceedings? No, no, I I think quite the opposite. I think the sooner it's got on, uh, because the expectation is high, and the longer it goes on without anything happening, uh, the more the upset will be. I mean, it is a mammoth task, but the sooner they get started, in my view, the better, because criminal prosecutions will be after the inquiry. That's the normal process as at Hillsborough. 
uh, and I think that um, uh, I, I would get on with it if I could. Actually, do you, I mean back to the point about the profile of of, of judges and Ooh. people who conduct these or who chair these inquiries? Um, is there scope for having a wider pool of potential chairs? There is, in fact, a wider pool of potential chairs. I mean, you sometimes see social workers or retired social workers chairing these things. It's not necessarily the case that you have a retired judge or serving judge doing it. But in fact, they tend to bring the better forensic skills to it. And that's really what you're after in the end, is answers. So, I mean, we've, we've seen the uh, other public inquiries, not, most notably the uh, inquiry into child sexual abuse, also very much under the spotlight. I mean, it's, uh, it looks as though that's a, almost a never-ending um, uh, endeavour. But how do you keep a rein on costs and timing? And, I mean, the, the amount of time spent on, a, on an inquiry must be a, a mammoth task. Well, I think um, you've, got the, you, you've got to make sure that the relatives and survivors are properly represented, but not represented uh, ad infinitum. That's the first thing. You've got to identify the issues and keep it under control. You have to separate the issues so that if you're inquiring into f uh, f cladding, you don't have uh, people there sitting all day um, who have nothing to do with it. I think it's man management and it has to be done um, as in all big uh, cases. I mean, in civil cases, you know, there are, they go on for six weeks or months. But it's control and management which is required. Actually, are there um, are there enough or too many lawyers involved in public inquiries? I mean, Sir Oliver's mentioning that you know you, you want people properly represented, but you don't want over representation. Experience suggests you end up with about the right number, but that's only because the chairs are fairly ruthless about allowing people in. Uh, it's interesting, you walk into the back of one of these public inquiries and you see a, a sea of expensive suits, uh, and it puts a lot of people off, and I think the chairman now are very conscious of that, uh, and as Sir Oliver just said, you manage it in a way that people are only there for the bits they need to be there for. Sir Oliver, um, a key point in, in public inquiries is appointing counsel to the inquiry. What are, what are the criteria, what are, what are the issues you look for when appointing counsel? Uh, good sense, hard work, uh, a good personality, because he's got to gather together the evidence, present it, and, and use it to cross-examine, and he's got to be comparatively neutral, and he's got to help the judge in arriving at a sensible conclusion. The Chilcot inquiry was hopeless because it didn't have counsel to the inquiry and it was it just ran on and on and on. The, the counsel of the inquiry is a very important part of, of the organisation. Ashley, what, uh, what, what, what are the characteristics you think uh, are required in a, in, a, in a QC to be counsel to the inquiry, or indeed any lawyer? Uh, thick skin, I think. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 it's a given that they have to have you know, a decent level of intelligence and, and ability to grasp the issues, but the, the fundamental thing is getting on with everybody because it's vital that the inquiry has the confidence of, of those who will judge it at the end. And counsel is central to, to building that, I think. And if you had one bit of advice then for, for um, Sir Martin Morbeck, what would it be? For me, uh, carry on managing expectations. Sir Oliver? Good luck. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. That's very helpful. And now over to Linda Chung and Laura Jaynes, the Legal Director at the Howard League for Penal Reform, who is this week's Lawyer of the Week. 
With me is Dr. Laura Jaynes of the Howard League for Penal Reform. Laura, thank you for joining us. Laura, in fact, instructed our Lawyer of the Week from last week, Dan Squires, QC of Matrix Chambers. Dan actually is in court all week and Laura has very kindly agreed to join us. Um, the case that Laura instructed Dan Squires on was the case of 16-year-old AB and the High Court found that AB had been in, subject to prolonged solitary confinement over 22 hours a day alone in his cell at Feltham Young Offenders Institution. The High Court ruled that AB's isolation and lack of education was unlawful. Um, Laura, how did you first get involved? How did AB get in touch with you when he, when he contacted the Howard League for Penal Reform? Well, in fact, I already represented AB through our specialist legal advice service. Um, I had worked with him prior to his last release from custody to make sure he had the right accommodation and support that he needed on release from prison. So he knew all about me and our service. But most importantly of all, he knew about our free confidential telephone line, which is for children and young people in prison. And, and that's a service that we've been running now for many years. And it's a way in which children and young people in custody actually have an opportunity to call and speak directly to a lawyer about legal issues. So in some ways, actually, it was surprising that it took so long for him to come into contact with me. And that in a way, it's not actually unusual because um, we find that children and young people actually put up with quite a lot and have quite low expectations uh, before they try and seek help to, to, to redress the issues they're facing. And what were the challenges for you as a charity and just dealing with children? Because I think he was under 16 when he first contacted you. Yes, yes, that's right. And as you know... Explaining his legal rights to essentially a child. Well, th that is our bread and butter. As you probably know, the age of criminal responsibility in this country begins at the age of 10. Um, so the Howard League for Penal Reform Specialist Advice Service works predominantly with children and young people and we also have a, a participation stream of work so we're very experienced in working out how to talk to young people and to make sure that we can represent them properly but also uh, reassure them so um, that that's standard for us but what was particularly challenging in this case was the fact that by the time he contacted us he'd already been in uh, conditions of isolation for over 22 hours a day for five weeks or so. Um, now, international expert bodies define prolonged solitary confinement as 22 hours a day or more with no meaningful human contact, which was his situation, for 15 days or more. So he'd already gone twice that at the point where he contacted us. The, the concern expressed by international bodies is that irreversible damage can set in as a result of prolonged solitary confinement. So it was a huge time pressure on us to try and try and resolve it as quickly as possible. And one of the results of the ruling is that hopefully changes will be made about access to education. In this particular case, he had no access really to education, which the High Court decided was a breach of the rules as well as unlawful. Yes, well, in, in fact, it was very. It was always very clearly a, a breach of the rules, and um, and I think that it's very good and powerful that the High Court has said that the, that they will take those breaches seriously. The, the thing to remember about this case is that the the grounds upon which we won were about the prison breaching its own rules and so it's important now that um, inspectorates and those who hold prisons to account are very clear that it's not just unfortunate when um, the rules are not adhered to but it's actually unlawful and so um, unfortunately since the even the judgment 
Um, on the 4th of July, we've had a further four children contacting us describing situations of being locked in their cells for 22 hours a day without access to education. So we'll be continuing to work with both individual children and young people and also more widely to try and make sure that the, the law is followed by, by the authorities. Now, your charity, the Howard League for Penal Reform, actually celebrated its 150th anniversary last year yes. and it campaigns for less crime and fewer people in prison. Now, are there fewer cases now? And safer communities. And safer the communities, other very important right, okay. part of what we do. Um, are there fewer cases now? Are there more? Is there hope for a more positive look after 150 years of existence? Well, um, as you know, the prison population, sadly, is at an all-time high. Um, we still have very very depressing figures in relation to the number of people who take their own lives in custody, um, which is at around one in every three days. Um, and the prison service is in, in a real state of crisis, so that makes things very difficult both for prisoners and their families, but also the staff in, in prisons. So I'm afraid as that, that we're working extremely hard, but we really do have our work cut out. Laura James, thank you very much. That's all for the Brief Premiums podcast this week. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in the coming weeks.